Today is Saturday, August 4th, and welcome to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I'm your host, Elon Martin, and with me today are Corey Shank. Hello, everybody. And Harrison Keeley. Hello. On today's show, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Warnings to the West, we will be discussing the Russian author's prescient insights and observations regarding Western politics, society, culture, and moral and spiritual development. Solzhenitsyn was born December 11, 1918, and died August 3, 2008, 10 years ago yesterday. He is best known for his novels, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, The First Circle, The Cancer Ward, and his magnum opus, The Gulag Archipelago. His books largely dealt with life under communist rule in Soviet Russia, and he wrote unsparingly about the harshness, suffering, and cruelty of a system that was severely oppressive. Solzhenitsyn was awarded the 1970 Nobel Peace Prize in Literature, quote, for the ethical force with which he pursued the indispensable traditions of Russian literature, end quote. During World War II, Solzhenitsyn was a commander in Stalin's Red Army and earned the Order of the Red Star. During this time, he witnessed gang rapes and pillaging committed by Soviet soldiers in letters he wrote to a friend in 1945, he spoke negatively of Stalin. And because of these letters and the fact that they were read by military intelligence, he was accused of anti-Soviet propaganda under Article 58, Paragraph 10 of the Soviet Criminal Code. He was actually sentenced to the Lubyanka prison in Moscow to serve an eight-year stint. On the 7th of July, 1945, he was sentenced to that term. He was sent to a labor camp. He spent part of his sentence in a Sharashka, which is a specific scientific research facility run by the Ministry of State Security. And in part of this time, uh, he was also sent to what was called a special camp for political prisoners. During his imprisonment at that camp, he was a minor bricklayer and foundry foreman. So basically, he was sentenced to do hard labor for several years. In 1953, when his sentence ended, he was sent into internal exile for a life in a region called Berlik. He initially was educated in the ways of uh, Soviet ideology. During his period as a soldier in the Red Army, he had some reservations that quickly turned into a kind of full-blown uh, rejection of the Soviet ideology, which is the reason why he was imprisoned. And it's a testament to just how tightly controlled and washed everybody was at the time that letters he had written were picked out and, and found and read. And for just voicing these sentiments was sentenced to eight years of prison. It was out of that eight years, especially in prison, that he, uh, he had forged a kind of a fuller understanding of what Soviet oppression was and how it existed and really kind of informed his writings. And later, a lot of the talks he was to give to the West. So some of what we'll be talking about today is uh, a series of speeches he had given in the U.S. and in the U.K. in 1975 and 1976, and also in 1978 uh, to Harvard University in a commencement speech. Um, and we'll be drawing on a lot of his writings to flesh out who Solzhenitsyn really was, and why his understanding of the Soviet system as it was is so important uh, in understanding some of the current trends in the West today. 
Well, I was thinking uh, just in terms of how priceless he was as an individual, combining his intellect, his ability to articulate uh, exactly what he experienced um, through his novels and, you know, in his speeches that he's given, because he provided a, a very powerful antidote to the kind of, you know, this communist-loving, liberal uh, ideologue, you know, that was in, that was, you know, that was growing and proliferating through the West, um, you know, that we see today, that he was able, he was able to give the exact description of what was really going on as an eyewitness, as someone who suffered within a gulag, who, you know, like you said, spent eight years and, you know, saw the saw what the system was like on the inside, how on the outside, you know, in the, you know, Stalin would organize cruises for the liberal intelligentsia, so they would come over and they would get to see what a quote-unquote Soviet village would look like, you know, and it was all staged, and then he, they would be expected to go back and write publications, you know, write for the um, the magazines and, and you know, to let everybody know just how utopian, you know, this Soviet uh, system was, and this was, you know, in the, the early days, but then, you know, behind the scenes, people being arrested and charged on nothing, you know, just because, you know, on the, they weren't completely 100% ideologically uh, uh, <laughs> pure, I guess you would say, yeah, <laughs> and, you know, rounded up and arrested and then charged, and then, you know, they would, they would protest, you know, what is my crime, and, you know, they would go along with the authorities and thinking that they had been, you know, committed to some sort of a crime and then get rounded up, but they never, they never got mm. charged with a crime. That wasn't the point. The point was to inspire terror into the people in order to sustain a system that otherwise had no basis in reality except for, you know, these uh, terror and pathological uh, ideas. And yeah, Solzhenitsyn was able to articulate this through his speeches and to warn the West that what was going on in the Soviet Union uh, and the precursors, you know, in the, the, the decades leading up to the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of, of Stalinism, that, um, that that could happen here. Mm -hmm. That not only could it happen here, but that if we weren't, uh, if we didn't understand, if we didn't take our freedom seriously, that it would. Mm -hmm. And one of, I guess, for me, there are two aspects that stand out in these speeches of warning. One is what you just said, Corey, the warning that it could happen here and to not get complacent. But the other is that um, what Solzhenitsyn saw when he came to the States was what he called a total lack of courage. Like he, the way he saw American society, but in particular its, its leaders, were the, basically that they had no spine and that they were constantly giving... Um, like making concessions to the Soviets, often thinking that the Soviets were acting in good faith when they weren't. Well, what he didn't know is that probably there were a lot of Americans, especially in the intelligence agencies, that weren't acting in good faith. But in general, um, the, just the American mentality was what we all experience every day, people who live in America or even Canada or other Western countries, is that there is a kind of, there's a an unspoken um, validity to your word, like you give someone your word and you expect them to keep it. And it's only very, very rarely that someone um, betrays you. 
So it's just, it just kind of goes without saying that there's like a verbal contract. And the way Solzhenitsyn saw it, he saw all these Americans as just being total rubes, like totally naive in their dealings with Soviet politicians. Um, but to get to, I wanted to comment on one of the things you said about just the arbitrary nature of arrests, um, because he fleshes that out in one of the one of the talks he gave. I believe it was the first one, or well, the first one in the book, Warning to the West, but I believe it was the second speech he gave in the United States after coming, um, because he the, the way he got to the States was that he was exiled um, in 1974. So, well, the reason he was exiled and not put back in prison or killed is, according to him, he thinks that it's because he was just, he had too much publicity. People knew who he was. He was too famous, basically, to get rid of. So they sent him to the West, hopeful, hoping that he'd just be ignored and, you know, he wouldn't be very effective doing what he did. Um, but Solzhenitsyn used that new freedom to um, to speak out even clearer. But on the nature of the arrests, um, he points out that one of the one of the things that led a lot of Americans to believe that the Soviet Union wasn't so bad, you know, at least, well, it wasn't as bad as it was in Stalin's time, was because at some point he, he writes that, uh, or he says in these speeches that whereas Stalin would have killed or, or would have arrested like a hundred people in order to make a point, you know, to deter other people from making the same bad choices that these people did, Khrushchev, for instance, would have arrested just the two necessary um, but the point that Solzhenitsyn makes is that, well, they're still arresting the two that are necessary, and that's still a crime. It's like just because it's two instead of a hundred, it, um, it doesn't excuse the reason that they're being arrested. And on the nature of those arrests, um, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from that first speech. Um, this is in the context of detente. He was very critical of the, the way that, in which the Americans approached detente. Um, he says, let me give you some examples. Um, this is why detente doesn't work. Mere acquaintance with an American, and God forbid that you should sit with him in a cafe or restaurant, meant a 10-year term for suspicion of espionage. In the first volume of the Gulag Archipelago, I tell of an event which was recounted not by some insignificant arrested person, but by all the members of the Supreme Court of the USSR during that brief period when I was in the good graces of the regime under Khrushchev. A Soviet citizen had been in the United States and on his return said that they have wonderful roads there. The KGB arrested him and demanded a term of 10 years, but the judge said, I don't object, but there is not enough evidence. Couldn't you find something else against him? So the judge was exiled to Sakhalin because he dared to argue, and they gave the other man 10 years. Just imagine what lie he had told and what praise this was of American imperialism. In America, there are good roads. Ten years. So, <clears throat> ten years for saying they have good roads in America, because that's anti-Soviet propaganda, um, imperialist anti-Soviet propaganda. If you've read Kafka's The Trial, mm -hmm. or you know Orwell's 1984, or any of the great books, like novels written on just the absurd nature of totalitarianism, then you get an idea of what it is. But when you're reading those books, you're like, this is fiction, you know, it must be exaggerated. But the thing you learn when you read about, like, the actual memoirs and accounts of what really happened is that that's exactly what happened. It's no exaggeration when you're reading these books 10 years the, for saying that America has good roads. And I think the way that he fleshes out this reality 
especially in Day in the Life of Ivan uh, Denosevich or uh, in the First Circle, is he, uh, first of all, he has very, very colorful characters whose inner lives haven't been completely demolished by the system that they are being held prisoner of. And they're asking these, these questions that are both practical and realistic and also existential that gives the reader a, a, a kind of an insight into the, um, into the types of pain and psychological reality that they had to endure. This was a gift that Solzhenitsyn had given to the West and to the world. This is the reality, and it, it wasn't some kind of two-dimensional uh, journalist's account of, of, of events in a certain place. This was a, a kind of a... Um, uh, a real insight in, into the lives of all too many people uh, who had lived in this time and place. And uh, I, I think that that's one of his major successes and, and the, the kind of reason why he was acknowledged and lauded so much in the West. He had, he had made this a reality for, for the rest of the world, who up until that time uh, had only a vague understanding of, of what life under Stalin and, and Soviet Russia was really like. Yeah, they they had a you know like the ideologues kind of understanding um, you know that that was the main because that was the Soviet way of projecting its image on the world was through uh, propaganda which they were very active uh, in spreading you know that it was a socialist system that you know, that it was based completely on this ideal this utopian ideology that was you know progressing. Uh, uh, along you know these lines that would make life better for for everybody, whereas in reality, um, you know, as we learned in political ponderology, uh, there's a completely different beast underneath that mask, and Solzhenitsyn shows that through his work and in his courage, and then also in his persecution. Um, but at the same time, when he comes to the West, I found it interesting that he doesn't, that he says that whereas the Soviet system was so uh, terrible, so brutal, he still makes the comment that he would not want the Western system instead, which I thought was particularly interesting because he's he did gain a reputation for being a critic, um, a Western critic, which I think, you know, just for him, he was just critical. He was a, he thought, he was a thinker. Um, and so obviously any system is going to have its issues, but he was, I think he was coming, he was coming in in the 70s and he was seeing uh, in American society uh, the kind of decadence uh, that w had led up to the, the Bolshevik revolution in Russia in the 20th century, in the early 20th century and in the late 19th century. Um, you know, because I think that he had made the comment that in the West there were, uh, he was asked how many, what kind of issues did the West have that were similar to what Russia had uh, under the, the czars, you know, the Russian Empire? And one thing he commented on was how it seemed like the intellect, the true intellectual elite had had retreated from making any sort of real critique of, of or to give their arguments about what was going on in society. And they had left, the older generations had left um, the young pretty much to, mm -hmm. to make those decisions for themselves, that the young were the one, they, the, the youthful people had the loudest voices and the rest had just kind of retired. You know, they had just, you know, let, uh, left everyone to their own, the youth to their own devices. That was one big thing that he said 
was a sign of that kind of that that weakness and that cowardice that was that was uh, kind of enveloping the West at the time. Well, you know, it, it, it seems as though forged through the suffering that he had undergone, uh, that there was a, a kind of a, an astute uh, pattern recognition uh, that he had um, felt compelled to think very deeply on what the Soviet system was and, and later on what the Western system of governance and, and culture was. And, uh, and in one of the speeches he had given, this one in particular was um, given at Harvard in 1978 and speaks a little to what you just mentioned, Corey. He says, in today's Western society, the inequality has been revealed in freedom for good deeds and freedom for evil deeds. A statesman who wants to achieve something important and highly constructive for his country has to move cautiously and even timidly. There are thousands of hasty and irresponsible critics around him. Parliament and the press keep rebuffing him. As he moves ahead, he has to prove that each single step of his is well-founded and absolutely flawless. Actually, an outstanding and particularly gifted person who has unusual and unexpected initiatives in mind hardly gets a chance to assert himself. From the very beginning, dozens of traps will be set out for him. Thus, mediocrity triumphs with the excuse of restrictions imposed by democracy. Um, you know, not, not to put, uh, <laughs> not to make too much of this in comparison to Trump, because, uh, you know, I, I hardly think he's a genius or, um, or someone who's especially gifted. But it, it is interesting to read that with Trump in mind, uh, as someone who is just trying to upend the status quo a little bit, um, even if he's flawed in, in a dozen uh, or a hundred other ways. So, um, but I'm sure that there are other examples of, of people in, in American society and politics uh, who have been uh, squashed um, in just the way that uh, Solzhenitsyn mentions here, uh, because there's this kind of, as he says, mediocrity triumphs. And, and that's one of, uh, one, of, one of the best observations I think think he has about the West and the U.S. in particular. Well, I'll read from his Harvard address. This gets into the, the things you two were just talking about. So he writes, But should I be asked instead whether I would propose the West, such, it is it, such as it is today, as a model to my country, I would frankly have to answer negatively. No, I could not recommend your society as an ideal for the transformation of ours. Through deep suffering, people in our country have now achieved a spiritual development of such intensity that the Western system in its present state of spiritual exhaustion does not look attractive. Even those characteristics of your life which I have just enumerated are extremely saddening. Um, and you can read the speech to see all the things that he's talking about. The section that Ilan just read is one of them about the politicians. And he traces this back. This is one of the things that I think Solzhenitsyn is so good at because he, he was, if not the greatest, one of the greatest critics of the Soviet government, but he was also a very harsh critic of the West, even though he held it up as an ideal. Well, he held it up as an ideal, as he held certain aspects of it up as an ideal, but he was just like unrelenting in his criticism of what he saw as being wrong with the West. Now, this is a this is a uh, perspective that I, don't, I think you don't get from... 
even Jordan Peterson, for instance. So Jordan Peterson will um, will play up the good things about Western society, and he'll say, "Oh well, every you know every system is flawed," but he never really like rips into the the things that are that are bad about Western society. And Solzhenitsyn, being an outsider, was just you know he didn't hold anything back, and that that's what I I think is so great about him is that he he paints a a very interesting picture of of not only how both societies are bad in their own ways, but it also it gives the distinction between like a, a real pathocracy like the Soviet Union was and a culture that and a society that is just kind of like dying from the inside like America, because they're two separate things. Both can have their their um, their atrocities and their their the things that are just morally reprehensible about them, but they're two different animals. They're two different diseases. So that. On the one hand, that has to be kept in mind because I know a lot of people will, um, especially a lot of like pro um, pro Soviet, like pro communist types, will will see America as like the biggest baddie in the in the group and kind of make a either a, an equivalence between like a, the Western society and Soviet society, and um, and even maybe um, say Soviet society was better. The Soviets knew what they were doing. When I think I think that's morally reprehensible to to do that. But so it, it's you have to have some nuance to be able to see that there are things that are very wrong about Western society, but that doesn't make it like it's not like you can't still make distinctions between American society in particular or Western in general and Soviet society as it was. Um, and what Solzhenitsyn does, he traces this back to the the worldview that Americans have and specifically to like the Enlightenment and the Renaissance. And he says that the, what eventually happened, what turned out was that that was a, a terrible thing for, for all the good things that came out of the Enlightenment and the, and the Renaissance. There, it created a materialistic worldview that, um, that elevated well-being to the level of like the ultimate good. Um, the way Solzhenitsyn puts it at several times is that it elevated man to the place where God was so that man's judgments... Um, take the place of the the scale of values that religion previously provided, and that does in um, the the scale of values that it still does provide to those who are religious. But in the West, that has lost its its place in its place as like the the overarching grand narrative and and ultimate aim of life to just kind of like this fragmented thing among individuals and, and smaller groups, but the, it, but um, Western society has lost that kind of, that unifying um, grand narrative that provides the ultimate scale of values. Um, I'll read a couple things where he kind of makes this clear. So he talks, uh, he's talking about some of the bad things about um, Western society, including, <laughs> I liked how he put this, um, the revolting invasion of commercial advertising, TV stupor, and intolerable music. All this is visible to numerous observers from all the worlds of our planet. The Western way of life is less and less likely to become the leading model. There are telltale symptoms by which history gives warning to a threatened or perishing society. Such, as, such are, for instance, a decline of the arts or a lack of great statesmen. The smooth surface film must be very thin. Um, oh, I'll read the bit before that. So the center of your democracy and your culture is left without electric power for only a few hours, and all of a sudden crowds of American citizens start looting and creating havoc. 
The smooth surface film must be very thin then, the social system quite unstable and unhealthy. But the fight for our planet, physical and spiritual, a fight of cosmic proportions, is not a vague matter of the future. It has already started. The forces of evil have begun their decisive offensive. You can feel their pressure. Yet your screens and publications are full of prescribed smiles and raised glasses. What is the joy about? And specifically in his criticism of the of Western society and uh, the, tracing it back to the Enlightenment and uh, and the Renaissance, um, he writes. This means the mistake must be at the root, at the very foundation of thought in modern times. I refer to the prevailing Western view of the world, which was born in the Renaissance and has found political expression since the Age of Enlightenment. It became the basis for political and social doctrine and could be called rationalistic humanism or humanistic autonomy. The proclaimed and practiced autonomy of man for any higher force above him, um, the proclaimed and practiced autonomy of man from any higher force above him. It could be called anthropo anthropocentricity, with man seen as the center of all. One of the con Well, this ties back to our discussion last week about uh, Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, because Sam Harris is essentially an anthro anthropos anthropocentric um, rational humanist, and he even gives as his ultimate goal well-being, right? That was his criterion for the development of, of the ultimate good in society. And so we were kind of joking about that last week and pointed out how the way he kind of presents this is uh, as this... Um, it, it resembles a lot of the utopias that... that Because uh, that's essentially what Sam Harris does. He says, oh, well, this is what we need, and when we do that, then the world will be great because we'll get rid of everything that's bad. And he essentially creates this utopian vision of the future and in this harvard address by solzhenitsyn he just points out how it, that is exactly what the soviet union did that is exactly what the bolsheviks did that was their their reigning um um guiding mo ideology and motive and and that's he's even got the one of the headings for subheadings for part of the speech is well-being because <laughs> i just thought that was funny that uh that that's the exact word that uh, that Harris chose. So maybe maybe Harris is a closet communist. Maybe he's maybe he's a watermelon. It's pink on the inside. <laughs> oh, no, that's that was mean of me. I red, say yeah. But one of the con one of the consequences that Solzhenitsyn says about this um, you know this humanistic thought is that you lose the understanding of good and evil. And he says that the understanding of good and evil is essential for for any society for any human that like that is one of the things we cannot do without is an understanding of good and evil. And so he writes that the humanistic way of thinking, which had proclaimed itself our guide, did not admit the existence of intrinsic evil in man, nor did it see any task higher than the attainment of happiness on earth. There's Sam Harris. It started modern Western civilization on the dangerous trend of worshiping man and his material needs. Everything beyond physical well-being and the accumulation of material goods all other human requirements and characteristics of a subtler or, and higher nature were left outside the area of attention of state and social systems, as if human life did not have any higher meaning. Thus gaps were left open for evil, and its drafts blow freely today. Mere freedom per se does not, le does not in the least solve all the problems of human life, and even adds a number of new ones. That freedom, or freedom was given to the individual conditionally, in the assumption 
of his constant religious responsibility. This is in, ref in reference to American democracy um, and its, uh, its belief in individual rights granted to, to each individual as one of God's creatures. So he's talking that the flip side of that, the flip side of individual rights is religious responsibility. At least that was the subtext and the implied, um, the implicit um, thing that went along with rights as, you know, as it was hundreds of, like 300 years ago. This is, again, something that Peterson points out, is that you can't have rights without responsibility. And group rights make no, no sense because you can't have group responsibility. That's what you had in the Soviet Union, group responsibility. And it turns into a nightmare. So he says, such was the heritage of the preceding 1,000 years. 200 or even 50 years ago, it would have seemed quite impossible in America that an individual be granted boundless freedom with no purpose, simply for the satisfaction of his whims. Consequently, however, all such limitations were eroded everywhere in the West. A total emancipation occurred from the moral heritage of Christian centuries with their great reserves of mercy and sacrifice. State systems were becoming ever more materialistic. The West has finally achieved the rights of man and even to excess, but man's sense of responsibility to God and society has grown dimmer and dimmer. In the past decades, the legalistic selfishness of the Western approach to the world has reached its peak, and the world has found itself in a harsh spiritual crisis and a political impasse. All the celebrated technological achievements of progress, including the conquest of outer space, do not redeem the 20th century's moral poverty, which no one could have imagined even as late as the 19th century. I think that's particularly fascinating um, just to think about the degree of this freedom that he's talking about. You know, if we could say it's freedom in quotes. Um, and then the abject slavery that was experienced in the Soviet Union and the relationship uh, between the two that seems to go back all the way throughout uh, throughout history that we uh, at least I, I, I just ended up, I just, I was reading a book that Solzhenitsyn uh, recommends in one of his speeches by a Soviet statistician named Igor Shevarovich. I think that was his name, Igor Shevarovich. But he had this book published in France, I believe in the 70s or the, must have been the 60s or the 70s. And in that book, he details the history of socialist ideas that goes all the way back to uh, classical uh, Greece. And in a in, in one of those, uh, and and it's the exact same. The ideas are the exact same every time they come up. It's the communal or the uh, making all property uh, communally owned, uh, making all women uh, the wives of every man, the state uh, raising the children. Um, uh, the emancipation or quote unquote the emancipation of the workers against the evil the evil rich and it was to, uh, with the enlightenment it became much more potent I think because of the eradication of this kind of religious um, worldview that because even like many many different Christian sects throughout the uh, the medieval era were were practicing this and they were somewhat violently revolutionary like the Anabaptists in Germany they would uh, 
they they tried to create a new Jerusalem in Munster, and they they held the town hostage for a year and a half practicing these socialist uh, ideals, and you know, they, they, and their leaders were insane. <laughs> you know, they're just absolutely insane. I think the one leader when the when the armies finally broke uh, broke through and the siege was ended on the town, he went and he hid in one of the in somebody's bed and pre tried to pretend he wasn't the, the leader, and then. He, <laughs> And you know he's crying and just an absolute mess. Whereas just a few years earlier he was the prophet of the the new socialist uh, agenda. And the author makes the point that this Igor makes the point that uh, that it seems like this socialist utopian ideal it had it, a lot, many of its roots were in Christianity, even though it, it dates back before that. But it's almost like this perversion, this crazy, you know, almost like the satanic perversion of the Christian ideal that when Christ, then when we lost Christianity, we retained that that perverse nature, and and it seemed almost like the last vestige of Christian, uh, you know, sentiment. Oh, mm -hmm. socialism. That's so, oh, that's so great. That's a way to absolve my guilt for all of the suffering in the world, all of the suffering of the, the poor and the downtrodden. And, and, you know, you can just sign up and become a card carrying communist and we'll go ahead and take care of those evil, the evil imperialists and everything was switched on its head mm -hmm. in this radical, um, process, uh, with the, you know, the dawn of Marx because Marx's books, when you read them in the context of all these other, uh, philosophers, and thinkers, religious uh, thinkers, priests, um, all the way back uh, to you know Greek philosophers and their plays about um, these you know socialist thinkers that they essentially made like a mockery of them. But they started. They also had some more serious proponents. Um, they're all the same. Mm -hmm. They're they're completely radical. Like it's bizarre how similar they all are. Like they just get projected <laughs> into people's brains. It's bizarre. Well, you mentioned that a lot of these ideas can be like the the seeds of them can be found in Christianity and i think that the one of the one of the reasons that the that things always go in that direction is that certain certain practices don't scale like so certain things that work on a, an interpersonal level won't work on a you know an international level and certain things that don't work or that do work on a small group level won't work at a at a large group level and so with communism for instance you can have a degree of communism in like your household or even like a, you know, a small group of people and it can theoretically work. And well, I think it, it can work and it, it's provably working in certain examples of like communes, communes and things like that, where a small group of people all in agreement with each other can achieve something and sustain it. But that will only apply to the, to people willing to enter that system or who are born into it. And then, and, the, and, uh, and then maybe choose it as they grow up. But when you try to then impose that as a social solution on an entire population, it has, it can go nowhere but down. It can be nothing but a, a travesty. Because, first of all, you, not everyone will agree. And what do you do with the people who disagree? Well, according to communists, you have to kill them. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the only way to do this. And that, that was, this is one of the things in the, in the warning to the West speeches where he, where Solzhenitsyn is talking about what communism, you know, actually is to try to kind of, uh, you know, pierce through the illusions that a lot of people in the West had about what, what communism actually is. Um, and so he quotes, for example, one of the letters Marx wrote to Engels 
where he when he, when speaking of the the communist revolution he said that it will ne- it will be necessary to repeat the year 1793 mm-hmm. after achieving power will be considered monsters but we couldn't care less and on the subject of good and evil being done away with he writes depending on circumstances and the political situation any act including murder even the killing of hundreds of thousands could be good or could be bad. All that depends on class ideology. Later on, he, wrote, he writes, All the communist parties, upon attaining power, have become completely merciless. But at the stage before they achieve power, it is necessary to use disguises. And then on communism's view of war, this is how he phrases it. War is necessary. War is an instrument for achieving a goal. <coughs> Now these are these and thoughts like them, well, and observations like these are what inspired Lobachevsky to write you know a lot of the the, the passages that he wrote in political panorology. Um, first of all, you know the, necess- the necessity to use disguises, well, one of the reasons one of the reasons for that is that as a macro macro social pathological phenomenon, it is like it is like psychopathy, where a mask has to be put, you know, a front has to be put up in order to give an impression to, so that people don't see the true nature of it. And you see this on a, it's almost like a, on a caricature level when you get to the, to the state level. Um, like you mentioned earlier, Corey, about the, the, the shows that the, the Soviets would, would put on for visiting, um, you know, members of other populations. There's a great, uh, great novel. I can't pronounce it. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I think it's Danilo Kish. He's a Yugoslavia. He was from Yugoslavia, and he wrote a, a novel called *A Tomb for Boris um, Davidovich*. And in one of those, there's a story. And while these may be like fictional accounts, they are, you know, rooted in the truth. I mean, like they're, they're truth in the form of a lie, you know, as as most as good art is. And so there's this story in there about um, a Soviet official who's, you know, called called one one morning while he's in the apartment of his uh, mistress and he said, oh, there's an important, we got something really important coming or someone really important coming. So the story is that there's this, this guy from like the UK that's coming and this, this guy from the UK is uh, like a, he's pro communist. And, but in, in writings and speeches that he's given in, in the UK, he's been critical of the, the Soviets for their attitude towards Christianity and towards people of faith. And so they said, well, this is very bad. You know, we've got to do something about this. So it's this guy's job to go to this old church, which has been turned into like a, a, a beer, um, beer making factory. And, you know, he's got four hours to clear out all of the beer making equipment and make it look like a church. He dresses up as a, as a priest. They fill the aisles with all of the, you know, employees of the, you know, the, the office of the, you know, the security services. And... And then this guy comes and they're like, oh, well, let's, let's take a look at this church. And he's there, you know, he's on the pulpit pretending to give a, a sermon to, to the people. So the guy, you know, stays for a little while, he you know, nods his head, and then, you know, after five or ten minutes he leaves. Of course, there's more to the story than that. But that is essentially what that looks like, what that dissimulative attitude looks like um, in practice. And again, it's like it's like reading a Kafka novel. It, it sounds so over the top, but things like that were regular occurrences. So it's like, well, what kind of minds must be behind that? Well, um, we kind of know what mind, what kind of minds those are. But uh, well, any comments on that? Or I had 
another point I wanted to get back to from an earlier part of our discussion. The only thing that I can think of to add to that is that I, I can't remember the author's name, but he was a psychologist. I think it was a psychoanalyst, but he did publish some work on the psychopath. And he discussed the fact that from his studies of the psychopath, that for, for him, it, it seemed as though for the psychopath, the fact, a fact as having independent existence was it was not, uh, it was impossible for a psychopath to understand the independent existence of a fact because the fact's independent existence, like it exerts sort of a sovereignty upon you as a person. It, you know, as people, when we, when we look at reality, you know, we don't think to try and necessarily bend everything to our will for our own personal designs. If we do, then there's some, they, that person is typically seen as pathological. Whereas for the psychopath, facts don't exist because they're, they're because of that sovereignty they impose on them. They're, it's like a revolution against reality that's just innate and that that breeds these kinds of systems where you know there is no such thing as good and evil. There is no such thing as objective reality because that would mean I can't do whatever I want. Well, on, just on that subject, I want to talk about that for a bit because I don't I never liked the way that that guy phrased that idea, um, that psychopaths, that, that there are no facts to a psychopath. To a psychopath, all that exists is what he imagines or what he w wishes to be. And I think that is, I don't think that's true. But I think there's an idea like behind those words that is true. For someone to tell a lie, they have to have some awareness of what the truth is. If you had no conception of the truth, then you wouldn't know what circumstance would get you caught, right? You, you have to have some awareness of the, you know, the nature of causality. Oh, I, I left that knife there with my bloody fingerprint on it. Um, you know, well, that's a fact. A criminal like psychopath knows that. He knows that he's got to clear that, that uh, you know, fingerprint or clear the knife or get rid of the knife. He's not going to just leave it there. He can't just look at the knife and say, because if he had no conception of facts whatsoever, he, he would see that knife and be like, oh, well, that's not my knife. I'm just going to leave it there. Now, some criminals do leave their knives because they're stupid, but the smart ones, and there are smart ones, know to, to get rid of it. They have a, some awareness of facts. I think what that guy is getting at, or, or what he was seeing kind of vaguely, you know, through a, you know, through a kind of distorted lens, was the idea, like you, were, like you mentioned, Corey, that there, what, what's actually going on there is that psychopaths don't have the, the emotional... Um, the emotional attraction or, um, or truth doesn't have the emotional valence that it does to normal people because of the, the, the muted emotions of a, you know, of a psychopath. They don't have, they, the tr basically, truth doesn't have a value to them, at least not a value greater than what it will, um, what it will provide to the psychopath in a, a, just a very egocentric, you know, egoistic way. So facts will matter to a psychopath if that fact is beneficial to the psychopath. It's just that it doesn't matter for anyone else, and truth in and, in and of itself has no value to a psychopath. So they, they'll just, they can lie without any feelings of guilt or, or remorse because it doesn't matter to them. The only thing that matters to them is that short-term me now, me want now, mm -hmm. or, or me want in a few days, so me going to get that. Well, I'd like to add a... Um a quote from uh, one, of, uh, one of his speeches that speaks directly to, to some of these issues. Uh, he says, communism has never concealed the fact that it rejects all absolute concepts of morality. It scoffs at any consideration of good and evil as indisputable categories. 
Communism considers morality to be relative, to be a class matter. Depending, on, depending upon circumstances and the political situation, any act, including murder, even the killing of hundreds of thousands, could be good or could be bad. It all depends upon class ideology. And who, def who defines this ideology? The whole class cannot get together to pass judgment. A handful of people determine what is good and what is bad. But I must say that in this very respect, communism has been most successful. It has infected the whole world with the belief in the relativity of good and evil. Today, many people, apart from the communists, are carried away by this idea. Among progressive people, it is considered rather awkward to use seriously such words as good and evil. Communism has managed to persuade all of us that these concepts are old-fashioned and laughable. But if we are to, to be deprived of the concepts of good and evil, what will be left? Nothing but the manipulation of one another. We will sink to the status of animals. Hmm. So um, a little earlier in the conversation, we talked about how uh, religion and, uh, and Christianity and, and possibly what was, what was best about uh, a faith in, in higher things has been uh, twisted and subverted uh, in some sense by communism. Um, Solzhenitsyn was a uh, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christian. Uh, his mother raised him that way. Um, and he was also indoctrinated into uh, communism. Uh, but at some point he had made the choice, I think, to to acknowledge what was higher and to make the distinction between uh, what was um, an ideological paramoralisms, as, as Lobachevsky would say, and, and what was true. He had, a, he had a taste for things that were true. He had a taste for uh, things that were just, that, that, um, that had uh, acknowledged um, the fact that man wasn't the center of the universe. Um, and this informed his writing and, and everything he did. I wanted to add that uh, just bringing Russia as, as an entity today, as a, as a country today, uh, there, is, there has been a resurgence, a renaissance of, of uh, this type of thinking in, uh, in the way that the Eastern Orthodox Church has uh, risen to, to prominence. Um, and traditional values have, have um, claimed its place uh, where communism for so long had, uh, had been the religion of, of Russia. Um, so uh, a little earlier, Harrison, you had mentioned that the uh, intense suffering of our country has now achieved a, spirit, a spiritual development of such intensity that the Western system in its present state of spiritual exhaustion does not look attractive. So 40 years ago he said this, and I think he was anticipating through uh, the suffering of, of Russians under communist rule um, a coming back to uh, Orthodox Christianity, or at least some of the, the sentiments um, of, uh, of believing in something and believing in good and evil. Um, one of, the, one of the other things he says just after that particular quote was, a fact which cannot be disputed is the weakening of human beings in the West 
while in the East they are becoming firmer and stronger. 60 years of our people and 30 years for the people of Eastern Europe. During that time, we have been through a spiritual training far in advance of Western experience. Life's complexity and mortal weight have produced stronger, deeper, and more interesting characters than those generally produced by standardized Western well-being. <laughs> so um, he, he clearly took a very long view of, uh, of all the developments. He could see 40 years ahead. He could see... Uh, he could see Putin's uh, religiosity and the religiosity of, of Russia today uh, bringing it to the point of, of successfully uh, bringing itself up after 70 years of communist rule. So um, I just thought that was pretty interesting. Well, but I think he was, he was right in two ways. He was right to, to kind of uh, see that direction, but he was also right to um he was right in his rejection of the bad things of western society in the sense that russia actually got a lot of those at the same time so i think from my perspective as an outsider it looks like um you know russia hasn't russia hasn't become exactly what solzhenitsyn would have liked um i think especially due to the 90s that a lot of western culture got imported into russia and all the things he said like um especially regarding like tv movies and music and like i mean a lot of russian culture is just bad american culture and it's unfortunately it's like that like the world over so he says he didn't see america you know the western model being the model for countries in the future i think he was wrong about that just because he didn't see just how just how effective american culture would be at like infecting everything that it comes into contact with um and and like the worst aspects of it, there are still. I mean, I wouldn't say that um, that all countries have become like models of America, but those aspects have just because of the nature of the, the interconnectivity of of nations nowadays due to to the media and like the internet, that that um, it's like a, it, it just reaches out and it touches everyone, and and so you get that that commercial. Um, consumer culture that has you know it's everywhere now it's in china you know it's it's in it's all in all east asia you know in japan and korea um so on the one hand he you know he couldn't his, his warning wasn't enough to prevent the the worst aspects of of um you know american western society from from you know infecting everyone mm -hmm. horribly <laughs> But uh, well, another thing that he that he wrote about that I thought was interesting in regard to um, the way that Russia has developed over the past thirty years um, were his, his what he wrote about like the difference difference between revolution and evolution um, because this is something that that Putin said I think it was in his interview his series of interviews with Oliver Stone but it might have been a different one it might have just been around that time but he wrote. Um, that uh, the Soviet Union was experiencing so many difficulties, so many failures that it had to seek some way out. And indeed, I thought that the way out, this was like, you know, several years ago before he's writing this in the 70s. I thought that the way out was to seek the path of evolution, certainly not the path of revolution, not an explosion. On this, Sakharov and I agree, an evolutionary smooth path 
which would offer a way out of this terrible system. He goes on to basically write that he, he doesn't think that's, that that evolution was possible, or he didn't think that ev that evolution was possible now in the 70s and 80s, just because it had, like totalitarianism had, a, had, had a achieved this kind of um, inertia that, um, that couldn't be fought against. Um, in that way, but that's that doesn't mean that he was advocating revolution either. He was kind of like, well, you know, what do we do? Um, he wrote because at the moment, because at the moment, the question is not how so how the Soviet Union will be able to find a way out of totalitarianism, but how the West will be able to avoid the same fate. He's basically saying like we're screwed in Russia at the moment, and it's not how we're going to fix Russia. It's how we're going to save the West from from suffering the same fate. How will the West be able to withstand the unprecedented force of totalitarianism? That is the problem. Um, I don't know whether West. I don't know whether Western listeners would find my words embarrassing. It is difficult for me to judge this kind of reaction. But I would put it this way: the people who have lived in the most terrible conditions on the frontier between life and death, be it people from the West or from the East, all understand the, that between good and evil. There is an irreconcilable contradiction, and then, and it is not one and the same thing, good and evil, that one cannot build one's life without regard to this distinction. So, that's so he he kind of saw saw this um, like contradiction in that evolution is the only way to go, um, and revolution is just it's rarely, if ever, it's probably never the right way to go. So this is what what. Uh, Putin had said in regard to the 90s that what should have happened, like in an ideal world, what would have happened with the, the is that the Soviet Union never would have fallen apart. What would have happened would be a steady a steady evolution of the system to bring in new ideas and to get rid of the old bad ones. Um, and this has kind of been what what Putin himself has been doing over the past 20 years. He's been he took the status quo of where Russia was in 1999 and. Evolved the the Russian state and the you know the the Russian Federation along those lines, and what really happened in the 90s it was it was a revolution. Um, Gordon Hahn, who we saw who we had in the show a year or two ago, he wrote a book called Russia's Revolution from Above. What it basically was in the in the in like the early 90s it was it was a revolution, but it was it wasn't a violent revolution from below, which is what the 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 Russian Revolution in 1917 was. This was a, a revolution within the power structure of the of the Soviet Union that. Well, you see, we see what the result of that was. We've run, we've been running a series by Alex Craner on SOT over the past week or so, on the um, on what the what that Russian revolution of the 90s really was and the disaster that it created for Russia. So basically, the, what what a revolution does is it destroys the the pre-existing order in the hopes of of achieving a new one. But in that, you have the destruction, and that is never a good thing. Like the the status quo is usually always better than a revolution that comes along that destroys everything in the hope of creating something better out of it. Even if something better is created out of it, which it hardly ever is, it's like how can that possibly justify the millions of people that die in the process? It can't. Um, and that's one of the reasons that that Solzhenitsyn was just so relentless in his in his criticism of the of the people that supported communism in the West is because they were like morally morally reprehensible and that's the way he saw it and that's what he called them there was this uh there's one great little bit in uh in the book um, i'm going to read it this is where he's talking about um well people of this sort so he writes <clears throat> 
maybe a, a little background. Okay, so I'll read the whole paragraph. There's, there's a certain woman here in the United States named Angela Davis. I don't know if you are familiar with her in this country, but in, in our country, literally for an entire year, we heard nothing at all except uh, nothing at all except Angela Davis. There was there was only Angela Davis in this whole world, and she was suffering. We had our ears stuffed with Angela Davis. Little children in school were told to sign petitions in defense of Angela Davis. Little boys and girls, eight and nine years old, were asked to do this. She was set free, as you know, although she didn't have too much. She didn't have too difficult a time in this country's jails. She came to recuperate in Soviet resorts. Some Soviet dissidents, but more important, a group of Czech dissidents, addressed an appeal to her. Comrade Davis, you were in prison. You know how unpleasant it is to sit in prison, especially when you consider yourself innocent. You have such great authority now. Could you help our Czech prisoners? Could you stand up for those people in Czechoslovakia who are being persecuted by the state? Angela Davis answered, they deserve what they get. Let them remain in prison. That is the face of communism. That is the heart of communism for you. So uh, you, you get all of these apologists for communism that will be like, oh, well, all those people deserved it. You know, all those people that were slaughtered, all those people that were sent, sent to the gulags and had their humanity, like, stripped away from them and they were, you know, beaten to the bone, starved half to death, but kept in that semi-state of starvation so they wouldn't die, and then forced to work like 12 hours a day doing hard labor. It's like, oh, they deserved it. Deserved it for, you know, I mean, people like that just sicken me. For, to, to say that someone deserves that because they, because they said that the U.S. had better roads than the Soviet Union? These people deserve it? So that, that is really the, the mentality that comes along when you kind of buy the communist Kool-Aid that you want a revolution, you know, or things are bad in the in, in our society, there's there's inequality, all we need is a, a communist revolution to set things right, mm -hmm. yeah, and then everyone that, that gets slaughtered in the process deserves it, because they were part of the system, part of the oppressive, um, you know, the oppressive patriarchy, and that's why I think that, uh, that Solzhenitsyn's warning to the West is so relevant today. It's not really, it's not relevant in the, in the way that he was talking about it in the 70s. Because in the 70s, what he really thought and what he, what he saw happening was, was basically the Soviet Union taking over the world and, the, and like encompassing the entire world and turning it into you know, one big gulag archipelago. And that didn't happen. The Soviet Union fell. And the, and the kind of the center, the, the pathocratic center that was the Soviet Union dissolved in a sense, and it has been, it, but, well, and the, the same type of ideology has raised itself up in the form of the, of the Islamic State, but that, and it's, that also was like an aborted attempt. I mean, they could never, never hope to achieve what they wanted on the level that the Soviets got, just by the nature of their, of their ideology and the, kind of the, really their strategy and tactics on the ground. Um, you know, they're almost eliminated as, a, a f as a f anything other than a... Um, you know, a mercenary um, underground terrorist group, which can, can, you know, well, which could do a lot of damage. But um, like the underground ragtag terrorist groups known as the, the communists did in Russia in the early 1900s. But what the, where the, the warning really shines through, I think, for today is that the, there's, there is the, the risk of that happening again from below, you know, a revolution from below mm -hmm. in in the, and, and you see this on the, in the radical left in Western societies, where they are falling into the same trap that the, the communists of the you know, late 19th century, early 20th century did, which led to the Russian Revolution. 
And if they have their way, this is why Jordan Peterson is, is so adamant and comes across as so kind of angry and, and um, uh, you know, mean, as some people would say it, is because this is, this is a, a real problem. This is, like, like Solzhenitsyn said, this is something to be scared of. Like, if this happens, like, we can't imagine what how our lives would change. We, you think it's bad now? You know, all, all, the, all the lefties who, you know, you think it's bad now? You think this is bad? Well, you know, the, the, the tables are going to turn and you might be the ones at the top, but things are going to be horrible for everyone else. And then they're going to be horrible for you because you're going to be one of the first people that are executed once the, you know, the new, what, Antifa regime takes over the United States or whatever. It's like... And that and that's a trend we we've seen happen again and again. We we you know the, there are the uh, the early adopters in in the party of uh, Soviet Russia who were slaughtered uh, by Stalin. Uh, you had the brown shirts under uh, under Hitler. Uh, that was one group of thugs that got that got killed uh, at at some point, wiped out. Um, but uh, like you were saying, Harrison, I mean there there is uh, we're hearing just. Just shocking, disgusting statements coming out of the radical left in the U.S. today. Uh, you know, kill all white males, and and mm -hmm. and this is coming out of the mouths of academics, out of people who are uh, who have tenure or, or who are shaping the minds of of, uh, of students in universities, um, and and it's uh, it, it's I think uh, Solzhenitsyn would say you know they're, they're reactionaries, and. Um, you know, like you were saying earlier, the point is not to be reactionary. the 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 point is to be evolutionary. The point is to to build on those things that are constructive or, or working well as they are, and not demolish everything uh, so that you're um, uh, you're essentially going in the other direction just because there were some some negative things, however highly negative, about the the previous system. So um, you mentioned Russia in the '90s. And um, I think that's really important because, uh, you know, you had Yeltsin, you had Gorbachev, um, who were finally, you know, at, at least at the beginning, able to say, look, we can all acknowledge to ourselves that, uh, that, that communism is a failure, abject failure, and we have nothing to show for it uh, except for a, a bloated military, uh, but we also have our machine shops and some infrastructure, but let's give you know, U.S. Um, democracy and, and the monetary system a try. And what did that do? Uh, as, the, as the articles that uh, we've been featuring recently uh, have been kind of fleshing out is that uh, it, it destroyed uh, Russia for, for upwards of uh, 10 years in, until Putin came into power. Uh, you had a, a kind of mafioso uh, control of industry uh, you had millions of people uh, dying from malnutrition uh, and, and the destruction of uh, medical services. Um, and this was all a movement towards democratization, U.S. style, with, with advisors telling Yeltsin what to do and where and how much. And, um, and so uh, what happens whenever you, you move into a direction that is the, the polar opposite, when, when you're not uh, building on what is what is working, what is good, uh, and when you're working towards an ideology of any kind, and that includes, you know, Western democracy is, is a kind of ideology uh, that, that half the world has bought into, uh, you're, it's a recipe for disaster. 
So, um, any comments on that? Or you know, I just I just wanted to comment just a little bit about uh, we discussed it before, but some of the parallels uh, between Russian society in the 19th century and you know what America is going through today, and the you know the decades that passed between um, the real outbreak of hysteria in the Russian Empire and the Russian Revolution. And, you know, it, it's, you know, it, the, it's interesting today because, you know, in America we talk about the 60s and, you know, all of the craziness that happened, uh, the free love generation and, you know, revolutionaries and radicals and, and drugs and hippies and, you know, and some really good music. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Russia also had the 60s, but they were the 1860s when, <laughs> and it was pretty much, it was roughly uh, very similar uh, because at that point... Um, free love? Yeah, no, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily free love. Roll. <laughs> but it was it was chaos, especially in the universities, where uh, professors, at least one professor in particular, was fired from his job because he required students to take an exam. <laughs> they were all going to be medical professionals, and he said, you know, they're not going to become doctors by playing billiards. But he he forced all these students to get uh, to. Um, to take the exam, and they got him fired through mass protests. They all protested against him um, because that was the that was the climate uh, of the time. There was uh, it was the time of the Tsar uh, Alexander II, and he had instituted these massive reforms to try and modernize Russia. Uh, you know, the he emancipated the serfs. Um, there was a, you know a wide adoption of you know the scientific kind of uh, materialist kind of mindset. There was there was uh, all sorts of ethnic strife um, there was there was war the Crimean war they and that was actually the what initiated I believe Alexander II's reform projects but anyways he you know for all of you know no good deed goes unpunished he was assassinated <laughs> there were so many assassination attempts on his life by radical students and radical revolutionaries who wanted to start a social revolution now you know we don't see that today but we hear it you know and you you uh, you know you don't necessarily see assassination attempts on the on the president of the United States, but you definitely hear that that uh, that clamor um, for you know that that hysteria that just keeps on building, and that it it was building at that time in the 1860s, and by 1881 uh, the Tsar was uh, assassinated, and then his his uh, successor instituted uh, a more uh, dictatorial. Um, movement, uh, the, which only exacerbated the the revolutionaries, but this the whole um, the moral decay was there in the in the universities when those when those students became adults and then you know the, and then they were drawn on in the revolutionary movements and when uh, you know as World War One uh, drew on the and. You know, then they initiated their uh, their revolution, and Lenin was you know sent in with some crazy backroom dealing with in Germany, and you know some evidence that Wall Street was also helping him along. Um, you know, it's probably the same types of people who today would want, uh, you know, who are kind of Bolsheviks in disguise, the same kinds of uh, weird liberal um, people in power. But yeah, the. Uh, all of the the hysteria and everything was uh, the the circumstances at that time, as Solzhenitsyn says, they had freedom. They had massive amounts of of freedom, and through reforms, and they 
squandered it. I mean, he can't say that it was purposeful or, consci or conscious, but the, the elements there of having freedom and then, you know, so like he says, soaring high like an eagle, and then it's almost as if some people desire slavery. And then, you know, there's always someone there to give it to you because <laughs> there's always people there who want to be slave masters. You know, those dynamics um, are, they're, they're definitely they're there today. Well, you mentioned the, the bit about the, well, in that story, the the students ganged up on the professor, right? And yeah. this is what, I think, Alon, you, one of you mentioned it earlier in the show, this is one of the things that, that um, Solzhenitsyn was critical about in, in Western society. And it, in this one paragraph, in one of the talks he gave, he, he just lists all the things, all the ways in which pre-revolutionary Russia and modern you know, then modern America were similar, and I think that a lot of them apply even more today than they than they applied when Solzhenitsyn wrote this. He wrote, and what we see is always the same as it was then. Adults deferring to the opinion of their children, mm -hmm. the younger generation carried away by shallow, worthless ideas, professors scared of being unfashionable, journalists refusing to take responsibility for the words they squander so easily, Universal sympathy for revolutionary extremists. People with serious objections unable or unwilling to voice them. The majority passively obsessed by a feeling of doom. Feeling feeble governments. Societies whose defensive reactions have become paralyzed. Spiritual confusion leading to political upheaval. But what will happen as a result of all this lies ahead of us? But the time is near. And from bitter memory, we can easily predict what these events will be. Now, he was writing this in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I wasn't alive in the 70s, so I don't know. I can't, you know, I don't have any frame of reference for how exactly the climate compares to today. But that whole, those, those first bits about the, you know, the younger generation. Mm -hmm. And you see this in college campuses today, where the, the students run the place. And the, the professors <laughs> are... Basically, running you know running around in fear of their students. They have to be careful what they say. They can't say the wrong thing. They have to apologize when they do something wrong. The like the 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 kids because they really are just kids. They're these entitled you know know it alls who who are just like mini tyrants and they think they're you know they think they're great people. They think this is justice. They think that they're they're the moral the moral heart of of society and the universities when really they're the you know the troublemakers that uh, that will get get everyone killed essentially, um, but uh, well, in there he talked about journalism too. He was just uh, um, he in, in some of these speeches. He's just he rips into the the British press, for instance, in this one of the talks he gave in the UK. Um, <laughs> He writes, your newspapers may be famous for their traditions, but they print a number of articles containing analyses and commentaries which are shamefully shallow and short-sighted. What can one say when your leading liberal paper compares the contemporary development of the Russian spiritual regeneration with pigs trying to fly? This is not just contempt for the spiritual potential of my people. It's broader than that. It's a kind of fastidious contempt for any kind of spiritual regeneration, for anything which does not stem directly from economics, but which is based on moral criteria. What an inglorious end to 400 years of materialism. And again, comparing what, where we are today from, to 40 years ago 
Like that was arguably what we today call a Russophobic state, you know, a Russophobic article in the UK press. Well, I mean, how much worse have things got where it's just, that's all you read now. It's all you read to the point where when I talk to people from Canada, they can't believe that, that you know, any of the things that I say about Russia or Putin, because, they're, because the media is just 100% totally against anything Russian. The Russians are all evil. Putin's an evil bastard, and he's out to kill everyone, and he's the new Hitler, and how can anything he does be good? How can he be right and anyone be wrong? I mean, even there was this... It, uh, Stephen Cohen was on uh, CNN, Anderson Cooper. He was talking to Max Boot. Is that the guy who's yeah. just... Uh, God, you know, CFR, neocon. He's a, a another like worm of a human being. But any, but uh, oh, just thinking about how much I dislike Max Boot, it made me forget what I wanted to say. <laughs> um, um, but it had something to do about uh, oh yeah. So it, Anderson Cooper, <laughs> he asks uh, Cohen what he thought of the the recent you know meeting between Trump and Putin and the press conference that took place after it. And and he said, "Oh, we you know we know nothing about when, what what was actually said in that meeting, um, and that's just it's so wrong that we know nothing about what's going on. That's just that's just horrible." And so Cohen just very calmly and rationally, first of all, gives a precedent. It's like, "Oh, well, when when um, when Reagan met with Gorbachev, they had these these secret meetings, and no one knew what it was out what what it was about, and good things came out of it. I mean, there's precedent. This is the way things work. This is the way diplomacy works." And uh, and plus, we do know a lot of what was said because in the Russian press, you know, they said they talked about this and that and this, and and then Cooper's like, oh well, that was the Russian press. It's like, oh, and and, and Putin said that. Oh, so so you're saying you believe Putin? And Cohen just kind of like rolls his eyes. He's like, what do I say to that? It's like, well, yeah, it it might come as a big shock to you, but I do believe some things that Putin says. It's like it's like it, we're at such this hysterical pitch that. A guy like Anderson Cooper just can't comprehend that someone might believe one thing that Putin said. It's like, you can't believe anything he says because he's a super liar. And they always lie, and we never lie. That, like, that must be the world that they live in where, I mean, you get this sharp divisions, black and white. We good, they bad. It's like, we always tell truth. They always lie to us. It's like, these people are freaking like Neanderthals that can't comprehend, like, if, if Putin were to say 2 plus 2 equals 4, they'd be like, oh, well, does it really? Can we believe him? Maybe it's actually 5. It's like, we, we should look into this. You know, we, we're, we're going to get our, you know, our top experts on this because you know, if Putin said it, we can't just trust that he said it or that he's telling the truth. It's like, God, grow a freaking brain. Um, <laughs> and, and then how they can say this with a straight face with the, the, like, the monumental, like, the monument of lies that Western politicians have been exposed for saying over the past generations. It's like, uh, well, I, I watched that interview too. And, um, uh, to his great credit, Stephen Cohen absolutely put them both in, in their place. Uh, and, and what he said basically is, you know, he's lived in Russia. He's lived in the U S uh, there are people more eminent than he is who, who, you know, showing a little modesty there, who believe, shocker, that some of Putin's uh, statements may actually be correct. So it, it, it was an, uh, just an incredible... I, I'm actually shocked that Anderson Cooper brought Stephen Cohen on to discuss anything rationally because uh, it, it, it risked having a, a little ounce of, uh, of truth when, when they allowed Stephen Cohen to say what he had to say in response to Max Boot. And Boot's just this smug asshole. Like at the end of the at the end of the 
the end of the interview, he, interview, he just gives this like this like uh, self righteous smirk um, because Cohen had said Cohen had said basically, well, you know, what do you want? Do you want do you want Trump to threaten Putin? It's like, what are you going to get out of that? Like what? But uh, and Boot is just like he's just got this smug smirk on his face. You just want to punch him. God. I'm these, still thinking about Max Boot. I know these people are so absolutely insane. I mean, it's 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 so it's crazy to imagine like what this would be like if you if if this happened to you in real life. You know, you're you're just walking down the street. Some guy's just like, "You're a liar. You're a murderer. You're a killer. You're a killer." And he just follows you around, and that's all he does is he's like, "You're a killer. You're a murderer. You're a killer." You're like, I, "What are you What are you talking about?" Like, I can't believe a word you say because you're a liar. You're a liar. This is this is the chorus that we have to listen to all the time are these kinds of people who should probably be in an insane asylum the way what they've done to their brains just running around calling putin a murderer and a criminal and a killer and just and just making it up just as they go along it's it, it's fascinating and it's not enough that they assert these lies uh and make a living doing it but insist that you believe those lies and if you don't then you're a putin apologist uh, a Russian bot, a, uh, a conspiracy theorist, um, or just a, the worst kind of human being. Mm -hmm. And I, I also had opportunity recently to speak to uh, some, some friends of mine uh, who are all pretty smart people, all educated, all uh, you know, successful in a kind of a middle-class way, uh, all people who respect me and who I respect, uh, decent people, and all of them, uh, were uh, holding on to this deeply anti-Russia, anti-Putin sentiment. Uh, and, and any facts to the contrary uh, could not possibly be the case. So that was a, it was a, um, uh, it was a real exercise for me in, uh, in, in patience and, and, uh, and conveying information and just the possibility that uh, that they were that they had been propagandized in in ways that they can't even imagine. Anybody who is that adamant about slandering someone else's character without adequate proof, need you need to think twice before you you need to assess their character at yeah. that point. You need to question. You their need to start character. questioning yeah. their character because anybody who does that, and that's why you know the po uh, ponerology is a is about macro social evil because we all know what that looks like on the level that we exist at on a day by day basis when somebody's in the workplace and they're constantly talking about somebody in like these salacious crazy ways you know unless you have some mental defect where you just oh, I just believe whatever everybody says because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, you know, then you're, you're going to naturally think, well, I, you know, I think this person protests a little bit too much, you know, what's mm -hmm. in it for them? Why do they, why do they, why are they attacking this person? And then you're like, oh, well, they, you know, they want their job or, oh, you know, they, they, they don't like them because they, they got their job or something, mm -hmm. you know, they got the promotion they didn't want. That's on the regular day by day basis. We know what that looks like on a macro social mm -hmm. basis. It's, it's, it's a very, very similar activity that takes place and you know what the, what don't they want they don't want america and russia to come into any sort of mutual agreement because that that right there it's like you know this this world that we're looking at in terms of like the multipolar versus unipolar um you know order or whatever that that expression right there is the 
of the multipolar world order is the antithesis of what these, you know, CIA, you know, deep state, whatever mentalities want to see in the world. They're so addicted to power to, I mean, when you think about it, their mentality is this kind of Soviet mentality where we dictate the terms, we create reality, we tell you what reality is, we tell you what to believe. In, the, in this multipolar world, if, you know, Russia and America and everybody, you know, agrees to base everything on making deals on you know sharing facts on you know it doesn't have to be a utopia but it's at least it's a you know a step towards something that's reasonable and not that you know uh, this the horrors that uh, that could exist if these people get their way and you know fighting Russia at every step of the way you know nuclear war and all that that's they, that's what they don't want. They hate that idea. They live off war. They make trillions, trillions of dollars on war, on selling guns to the Saudis, selling bombs to the Saudis so they can murder children, arming terrorists across the Middle East, and then profiting off of the destruction that they cause. And it's, that is their lifeblood, these kinds of individuals. They, that's, they would hate to see anything like peace because they live on destruction. That's, <laughs> they're like, vampires you know what oh you know I guess we'll just believe them <laughs> no don't listen to the vampires well I want to read because I'm still thinking about Anderson Cooper and and what a you know slimy twerp he is so I'm going to read some more of Solzhenitsyn's thoughts on the press this is from his Harvard address so he's addressing you know an American audience and an American press the press, too, of course, enjoys the widest freedom. I shall be using the word press to include all the media. But what use does it make of it? Here again, the overriding concern is not to infringe the letter of the law. Now, this is a, ref a reference to a pr previous part in the speech where he's talking about the legalistic nature of Western society and, and what a bad thing that is to have just a, a straight legalistic society. There is no true moral responsibility for distortion or disproportion. What sort of responsibility does a journalist or a newspaper have to the readership or to, his, or to history? If they have misled public opinion by inaccurate information or wrong conclusions, even if they have contributed to mistakes on a state level, do we know of any case of open regret voiced by the same journalist or the same newspaper? No. This would damage sales. A nation may be the worse. A nation may be the worse for such a mistake, but the journalist always gets away with it. It is most likely that he will start writing the exact opposite to, to his previous statements with renewed aplomb. Because instant and credible informa information is required, it becomes necessary to resort to guesswork, rumors, and suppositions to fill in the voids. And none of them will ever be refuted. They settle into into the reader's memory. How many hasty, immature, superficial, and misleading judgments are expressed every day, confusing readers, and are then left hanging? The press can act the role of public opinion or miseducate it. Thus we may see terrorists heroized, or secret matters pertaining to the nation's defense publicly revealed, or we may, we may witness shameless intrusion into the privacy of well-known people according to the slogan, every, everyone is entitled to know everything. Mm -hmm. But this is a false slogan of a false era. Far greater in value is the forfeited right of people not to know, not to have their divine souls stuffed with gossip, nonsense, vain talk. A person who works and leads a meaningful life has no need for this excessive and burdening flow of information. Hastiness and superficiality. These are the psychic diseases of the 20th century, and more than anywhere else this is manifested in the press. 
In-depth analysis of a problem is anathema to the press. It is contrary to its nature. The press merely, the press merely picks, our, picks out sensational formulas. Such as it is, however, the press has become the greatest power within the Western countries, exceeding that of the legislature, the executive, and the judici judiciary. Yet one would like to ask, according to what law has it been elected, and to whom is it responsible? In the communist East, a journalist is frankly appointed as a state official, but who has voted Western journalists into their positions of power, for how long a time, and with what prerogatives? There is yet another surprise for someone coming from the totalitarian East with its rigorously unified press. One discovers a common trend of preferences within the Western press as a whole, the spirit of the time, generally accepted patterns of thought, and maybe common corporate interests, the sum effect being not competition, but unification. Unrestrained freedom exists for the press, but not for the readership, because newspapers mostly transmit in a forceful and, emph and emphatic way those opinions which do not too openly contradict their own and that general trend. Without any, without any censorship in the West, fashionable trends of thought and ideas are fastidiously separated from those that are not fashionable, and the latter, without ever being forbidden, have little chance of finding their way into periodicals or books or being heard in colleges. Your scholars are free in the legal sense, but they are hemmed in by the idols of the prevailing fad. There is no open violence, as in the East. However, a selection dictated by fashion and the need to accommodate mass standards frequently prevents the most independent mind persons from contributing to public life and gives rise to a dangerous herd give rise to dangerous herd instincts that block successful development. In America, I have received letters from highly intelligent persons, maybe a teacher in a faraway small college who could do much for the renewal and salvation of his country, but the country cannot hear him because the media will not provide him with a forum. This gives birth to strong mass prejudices, to a blindness which is perilous in our dynamic era. An example is the self-deluding interpretation of the state of affairs in the contemporary world that functions as a, as a sort of petrified armor around people's minds to such a degree that human voices from 17 countries of Eastern Europe and, and Eastern Asia cannot pierce it. It will be broken only by the inexorable crowbar of events. Uh, it's an incredible passage. Yeah. And, and again, demonstrates... Uh, the, the prescience of his insights, uh, what he was able to see 40, over 40 years ago in the United States, the, the, the trends, the developments that have now become absolutely full-blown uh, in the U.S. Um, so what, what we're doing now is we're, we're reflecting on his, uh, on his insights and seeing how, uh, how they've actually come to pass and have become... Um, alive and and so very virulent um, and I, I guess the best we can do at this point is to is to look at all this uh, and see it for exactly what it is uh, a lot of this reminds me of uh, Lobachevsky's um, discussion of uh, pathocracy as it exists uh, and a, an understanding of pathocracy and pathology as it exists in peacetime uh, the U.S. never had uh, a time where they were deeply reflecting on the tragedies of, of revolution or, or, uh, or movements like um, Soviet ideology. Uh, and it seems to me that um, Solzhenitsyn was demonstrating this, this kind of reflection 
with his own society, with his own country, uh, that Americans and the West would do best to uh, take in as, as knowledge of, of pathological systems. Um, so I guess that's part of what we, what we tried to do today. On that note, I want to thank our listeners today for tuning in. Uh, we hope you got something out of it. We hope you uh, get a chance to, to read uh, some of his novels. Um, we'll be posting a link to the uh, Harvard address. Um, so you can read that. You can watch him with a translator. Uh, give the speech. Um, and I want to thank my co-host today, Harrison Keeley, Corey Shank. And have a good week, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.